and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. I'd like to welcome Rolf Gates on our show today. He is one of the leading voices of modern yoga and the author of Meditations from the Mat and Meditations on Intention and Being. A formal social worker and U.S. Airborne Ranger, his work has been featured in Yoga Journal, Natural Health, and People, and as one of Travel and Leisure's top 25 yoga studios around the world. He is the co-founder of the Yoga Meditation Recovery Conference and works weekly one-on-one with clients in his Yoga Life Coaching program. Rolf, Welcome to our show today. Well, thank you for having me. Now, I know that you recently came out with a book that I had uh, the opportunity to go through called Daily Reflections on Addiction, Yoga, and Getting Well. And I'm pretty excited to go through this because you you give the reader uh, something to read uh, once a day for a full year. So I'm curious to learn a little bit more about you know, how you came to create this book, but I would like to get into knowing just a little bit more about your history um, and being a formal social social worker. I'm a licensed mental health therapist myself. And um, through my, my work, I worked a lot with military. So I was also interested to hear just, you know, the different things that you've done that brought you to where you are today with yoga and meditation. Okay. Well, um, I mean, I started off, let's see, that's a broad, you know, I'm 54, so we're talking about like a big window. Um, But uh, pretty much uh, I got sober in the military. I had kind of traditional addiction issues, I guess. I started using it. I was like a blackout drinker at 14. Um, And so, but I used sports to kind of manage myself through high school and college and I knew that I needed some kind of managing. And so the military seemed like a lot of structure. And, and I also was just kind of drawn to it as a kind of a kind of a more adventuresome life. If you think about the 70s, um, ordinary work seemed somewhat um, unappetizing and the military seemed kind of adventurous. So the combination of needing some structure and having some adventure built into my life sounded cool. Uh, for like, you know, a 16 year old, I'm not sure that sounds cool to me today. Um, and, uh, so, uh, yeah, so I ended up bringing my addiction into the military. I kind of, uh, worked hard at it, but you know, and I, what I liked about, I chose to be in the infantry and you would be out in the field for 60 days, 90 days without any alcohol. And so, so there was a part of, there's a short period of my life, a few years in the military where I kind of managed being a drunk by being in the army. And then eventually that didn't work out and they sent me to rehab. And that's really what my life kind of started. I mean, I'm 28 years sober now and I was 26 when I got sober. So I spent most of my life in this side of the house, the sober side. And it started with a military rehab that was just, I think if you were to go to rehab today, 28 years later, you couldn't have found a better experience. I don't think it's a tech, like, like the how and the why of getting sober uh, w- was perfectly addressed in this six-week rehab they did for me. It was in Stuttgart, Germany. Um, and I was just really impressed by the counselors and by the 
there was this um, kind of collective intention that you could feel from like the executive director down to the you know, the most kind of ordinary counselor of the organization. And so you really felt like you had a bunch of adults doing something on purpose in a way that was one of the reasons I went into the military in the first place, is I liked this idea of a group uh, effort, a team effort. And I really, but like this idea of a team effort around people uh, alleviating suffering was just such a, I just, I was impressed by it. And so within, I think two years after I got, after that experience, I became an addictions counselor and started working with kids uh, in treatment. So that's how that, that's how I kind of went from the military to being a, uh, uh, a social worker. And then um, it turns out that that's really stressful. And so to take care of myself, when I was doing inpatient work with adolescents, uh, to, to take care of myself while that was happening, I started, you know, I was in Boston now. It's like the early 90s. And there's like a pretty vibrant meditation community and, and a, a newly and the thing about Boston is it's two hours from Kripalu Yoga Center, which is um, the largest uh, yoga facility in the United States. And so the, the AA community there, um, people would pop out to Kripalu or to this um, Inside Meditation Center in Barry, Mass. And so we had these um, very significant, I mean, to this day, Kripalu, and it's called IMS, is the Meditation Center, are like pretty much some of the most sophisticated offerings I think in the in the English speaking world, I'm not sure about like you know India or Asia or whatever. But you know, if you went to Thailand or Burma, you may find some pretty sophisticated stuff. But um, in the English speaking world, uh, I had an hour away from me probably one of the strongest meditation centers on the planet, and then definitely one of the most uh, one of the strongest yoga centers on the planet, two hours away from me. And so that was just like my circumstances. You know, if I'd come home to another part of the country, it may not have had the same kind of, you know, my, my life would have gone in different directions. Um, but working, you know, doing that hard work, uh, working with kids in treatment, it was like my time off needed to be extremely nourishing. And I found that yoga and meditation were just the thing for kind of shaking off whatever vicarious traumatization had happened at work and then refocusing me and getting me back into some enthusiasm for the next day. And so that's how I got into, you know, combining kind of treatment with yoga and meditation. Great. And I do want to talk a little bit more about yoga and meditation, but before we get into that, when I picked up your book, when I always see a book like this, that has like the 365 days, there's a part of me that I didn't want to read all of it because I personally would like to go through it day by day. But what I usually do is I pick out my favorite numbers. And of course, the one that I went to was 111. And that's uh, pretty significant just with our production company. But one of the things that struck me on uh, day 111 that uh, you had wrote was you said, once I got sober, I knew I had a whopping drinking problem. But what I did not know for some time was that the size of my drinking problem reflected the size of my trauma. Once I was sober, I had to accept the degree to which my childhood had left its mark on me. So, um, so that, that part there where you said my, you know, the size of my drinking problem reflected the size of my trauma. Do you feel like that that is true for most people that you have sat with and talked with, um, that tend to pick up the drink or the drug or whatever the addiction may be, um, relates to 
there's reasons why um, the addiction comes in. And do you see, did you also see that the size of people's trauma really does affect the level of the addiction that they have? Well, I think that, um, I mean, that kind of a question is an interesting, like, as I become more um, um, experienced as a teacher, it's interesting how to answer that question. Um, what I what I'll say is that uh, that's what the research seems to indicate. I don't. I'm not in a position to know that about another human being. Um, you know, at all. I have no. There's no. You know, I've, I've never taken any. So I've not done done any research. You know, around that question. Um, but I I work with people like Nikki uh, Myers, who founded the uh, Y12SR, and she's my yoga and twelve step recovery, and she's my co founder of yoga recovery conference and her, uh, you know, she's done the work to document, uh, a significant correlation between, uh, people who have the profile of someone with trauma and the profile of someone with, uh, an addiction. And so, yeah, I think in my own work, uh, which is not informed by research, um, it's just informed by kind of my anecdotal experience, day to day experiences, I see um, there being kind of two stages of intervention. There's the initial teaching someone how to be sober one day at a time, which is a huge deal. Um, and it's a deal breaker. Like if you don't get sober, you'll never treat the trauma. But then um, kind of sustained contented recovery is working on whatever um, brought the person to using every day to begin with. And that's usually going to be, uh, there's going to be a trauma history. I also think that it needs to be um, uh, acknowledged that, you know, I was talking to someone the other day that, you know, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, they, you know, it was written th at three years sober. Uh, those people were three years sober when they wrote the book. And they were like, the, the aim was a return to normal life. That was the phrase, a return to normal living, I think. And uh, and that sounded great to me. I remember being like in, you know, six months sober, a year sober. I'm like, yeah, this is such a visionary goal. And it's like terribly humble and, and, and mature. I want to return to normal life. But I think it has to be acknowledged that like being just a regular human being is a very dicey affair. Um, we need yoga. Yoga and, medita yoga and meditation uh, were designed to treat the human condition. We're designed to treat human nature quite apart from the complications of trauma and addiction, just being a regular human being is, um, is, is a very kind of just to the sensitivity of our central nervous system is so it's calibrated so high that, you know, we can just think things up and believe it and then live accordingly for, for generations without really reality testing. And so, yes, absolutely. That you put the drink down and you'll probably have to work on, there's probably trauma there, but you, but you deal with the trauma and there's also human nature there. And mm -hmm. so it's a very, this business of like creating content sobriety is, is pretty much going to be a work in progress for anybody. I'm like I said, I'm 28 years sober and I have a level of ease and peace in my life. But if you were like, well, Ralph, what do you do to achieve that? It's like, well, I've dedicated almost my entire sobriety. I've been working to help. I've been working with others uh, for 24 years professionally. Um, and my daily practice to, you know, and so that means that like 
you know, I'm, I'm pretty much five to six days a week helping others to recover from their addiction, to kind of manage, you know, whatever other issues they have, whatever traumas they have. I do that five, six days a week. And then my own personal practice is a couple hours a day, you know, and that's to develop some contentment. And so absolutely, I think there's a correlation. Most people that you run into who are getting sober, um, right beneath the surface is a pretty intense uh, post-traumatic stress reality that has to be addressed. Um, but you got to do first things first. You got to work on the addiction. And that's probably going to be like 12 to 24 months before the other stuff starts to be really um, uh, accessible. Yeah. And I would agree with you. I think, you know, having this human experience is, is quite a challenge. And, you know, I know that I've sat and I've talked with many different people and, you know, we've had some great debates about, you know, certain things, but there's also a part of me that thinks, you know, you and I were talking about um, addictions related to possibly alcohol or drugs, but there's a part of me that feels like, how can we be a human being without being an addict? Like, aren't all of us an addict in some way, shape or form? Because we are, we are such creatures of habit and repetition. And, you know, we could say, okay, well, you know, maybe I don't drink alcohol or do drugs, but I do have that coffee every day. Or when you look on the wide spectrum of what an addiction could be, it could be addicted to meditating, yoga, exercising. I mean, there's healthy addictions, right? But we are all, it seems like the human experience, it's hard not to be a creature of habit of something that you can easily get addicted to because there's so many things here on earth. Um, you know, that could lead to an addiction. So, you know, when you talk about how yoga and meditation can kind of just help the overall nervous system too of the body, it's that old saying, like everything in moderation, how, how can we be on earth with all of these great and wonderful things that can, you know, cause addictions, some for the better, some for the worse. But, you know, I've always thought about that too. Like there's, there's many healthy addictions as well. Well, I think, um, I mean, I, I don't, that, we don't, I don't think there's a time to really tease that out between you and I, um, but I'll just make a statement around that because um, it's interesting because I don't actually like I actually um, I actually think that um, something that, you know, for instance, like 12 step meeting attendance, people are like, oh, you're replacing one addiction for another. I, I, I categorically disagree with that. I think that if someone's going to meetings every day to kind of work on their, um, you know, the challenges they face in their life. That's not an addiction. That's called wisdom. And so I, I don't actually think of something. I think you can definitely have like an exercise addiction where you're basically there's a, there's a, you know, kind of, um, there's exercise bulimia, you know, I think that can happen, but I think that there are actually behaviors that are genuinely wise. I think that being kind is not, you know, there's not like a, necessarily an addiction to kindness. I think kindness is like the last resort of the human spirit, for example. But um, specifically, uh, the, where I'm working with this today is that, uh, and I think where we can kind of find an agreement is that um, we have mind-generated states. So like, um, you know, one that's common these days is being on a screen. Like that creates us not just a, a mental state, it creates a mind body state. So you're on a, being on a screen is a mind body state. Uh, Oxycontin cotton 
creates a mind-body state. Uh, uh, being self-righteous is a mind-body state. Um, being uh, convinced that if I get this donut, I'll be happy is a mind-body state. And so I think that there are like parameters of states that people just learn to rest in. You know, so some this person rests in uh, disappointment, and this person rests in anger, and this person, and of course, there's nuances to that. But the, but it's all of it is unchosen. You're not choosing. Hey, I want to like watch my news, and then I want to talk to my friends, and then I want to be angry on the road to stay in these parameters of mind states that I'm used to. People don't think of it that way. But the reality is, is that, and this is where I think the addiction piece comes in, is that it's, it may, we can call it addiction or not addiction, but people are just used to certain, a bandwidth of mind states, right? A bandwidth of mental, emotional, and, and physical states that are literally largely generated. If you think about, like, if you go online, um, you're going to go to the same websites, and you're going to kind of have a certain relate. Like, so I go to a wrestling website and I watch and I see all what's going on in Division One wrestling. I see what's going on in international wrestling, and it's kind of heart opening for me. And I have this kind of heart open mind body state that I can kind of rely on. If I go to FlowWrestling.com, I kind of feel a certain way. If I go to CNN, I, I feel a different way. And the same is true if I think about something. I can think about, um, you know something that's like contentious and I can have a mind body state. I can be like, Oh, I can't believe those people. Or I can reflect on something positive and be like, Oh, that was a great weekend. I really love working with those people in Erie PA. I just did a workshop there. But those people were awesome. I can have a mind body state. I think where practice comes in, where long-term yoga and meditation practice comes in is you can observe how the, uh, mind generates these states. You think about like something you're worried about and that generates a state. You think about something you're happy about, that generates a state. You think about something you're uh, anxious about generating a state. Uh, you can start to watch that and realize, oh, these are mind-generated states that just, what's tricky is we haven't been choosing them on purpose. We've just fallen into the habit of them. Choosing wakefulness you know, people use the word mindfulness um, for me, and that's cool. I, I don't want to, I'm not trying to coin another word, but in my own practice, I use the word wakefulness because it implies this, I'm awake and I'm kind of glad to engage, right? And so mindfulness slash wakeful, and also my meditation teachers, you know, encourage us to bring wakefulness to whatever's arising. And so wakefulness to me is kind of the opposite of, of um, it's an intentional state that you're learning to practice. And what I'm finding is that choosing an intentional state is just different than choosing. It's not more difficult. I think what happens is people are like, well, I can't meditate. It's really hard. Or I can't do this. I, because I'm used to these states of consciousness, but this would be hard for me to be over here. And what you actually see over time is that it's different. It's not more difficult. To practice mindfulness or wakefulness, which is to say resting in connection with the present moment, uh, really fully present for being fully present and aware of what's arising in the moment, internally and externally, practicing this is just different than practicing what we're used to. But it's not harder. 
And I think that this is where, like, if that distinction, if that can be kind of commonly accepted, oh, my God, I could be practicing kind of a, a wakeful, uh, compassionate mind-body state. I could choose this and live this as easily as I choose being irritated. I mean, I'm not, we're not aware that we're choosing being irritated behind a slow driver, but that's just like a, an accustomed state. So I get in the road and no one's driving fast enough. I'm accustomed to this, but I'm choosing it without realizing it. And I can choose wakefulness, compassion, insight, right? I can choose the ability to open my heart and my mind to all of my experience just as easily as I'm choosing CNN. It's just that we're, we, you know, we're not there yet as a species. We think that the, the, the mind-body states that we've been, the, the grooves, the ruts that we're in are just life. But they're a set of practice behaviors that generate a certain experience of everyday life. And we can practice, literally it's a behavior. Manifesting wakefulness and mindfulness and compassion is a behavior just as surely as manifesting disappointment or comparison or resentment. And so to me, this is um, like, this is where the conversation has gone. Like, I agree with you that like on the surface of it, there's like addictions here and addictions there. Um, but where I'm at now is like what causes, you know, before the behavior and the consequence, there's a mind state. And so that's where my practice has taken me. Yeah. Great. Thank you for that. Um, and I kind of want to talk too, and we're kind of moving in, into this area of spirituality and being able to heal from addiction, incorporating spirituality or surrendering, uh, you know, like the 12 step program, a lot of it is turning to your higher power. Um, you know, when you begin to bring yoga and meditation also into the healing of it, I'm trying to figure out what my question would be. Do you feel that people can heal from addictions without bringing spirituality into their healing? Or do you think it's just, it has to, it's hand in hand. I mean, I think overall, just us trying to be human beings, you know, once we kind of uh, become awake and are walking down this path, it seems that you will find spirituality in some way, tapping into, you know, a higher state of consciousness or the universe or God, whatever you want to call it. But, um, you know, anyone that I've ever talked to that either has like this wakefulness, this mindfulness, it does feel that somehow, some way along their path, they reconnect to spirit, to themselves, to something greater than themselves. Um, I think that, um, you know, in the, it's funny, we, we um, uh, we're having the same, I find myself being a little cagey in each of the questions. Uh, but it's in the it's in the um, the spirit of inclusivity, right? My intention is to be inclusive in the language I choose, and um, I just think there's skillful and unskillful ways of being. You know, uh, for an example, being open and available and steady as you meet life's challenges is skillful, right? Um, uh, greed, hatred, and delusion are unskillful, right? Um, as a way of life, right? And so I think that without question, a skillful, nuanced, integrated approach to life's challenges is going to be like a deal breaker for someone getting going into recovery. You, we've got to be able to 
integrate. For example, I, I grew up in the kind of a patriarchal, I was born during the Vietnam War. It was like patriarchy and racism and all this good stuff was like the, the you know, ordinary. The role models held out to me um, as a young person was James Bond and John Wayne. That's what men were like, and Rhett Butler. And literally, and I was convinced of this. This is what men are like. This is what we do. Um, and so a lot of early recovery for me, like my first 10 years was like acknowledging and integrating the feminine, you know? And so, uh, I would, I'm not sure that that's technically spiritual. It's, it's skillful in the sense that I'm, I'm broadening the circle of that, which is that I acknowledge as me, you know? So, so there's a uh, part of me is strength, but a part of me is surrender. And a part of me is masculine and a part of me is feminine and a part of me likes to be courageous and do cool things a part of me likes to sit on the couch and read a book and there's this progressive kind of acknowledgement and integration of all of you and as a person is doing that with themselves like if i forgive some part of myself or 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 um, reclaim a disowned part of myself i can meet that in you with kindness and compassion and so that is the process, you know, now the term that we use a lot of times for this, like broadening of the circle of our understanding and compassion, this is a Einstein quote. He said, our task must be to broaden the circle of our understanding and compassion. The term we use for that is, is generally the, 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 the domain in which that takes place is generally spiritual practice. It's, 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 those are the places where people have been like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sit down and I'm going to work on you know, my relationship to myself and others. And I'm going to do it with the expressed intention of gaining wisdom and compassion, not like gaining leverage or gaining, you know, a bank account, but literally so that the next interaction I have with another human being is a little more skillful. Traditionally, that's been uh, the domain of spiritual practice. Um, and I do believe that like a like a, a devout and loving relationship to something greater than yourself is part of what you're including. So for me, we've got these monarch butterflies. They're actually caterpillars that are going to chrysalises in our, my front yard this fall. And, you know, they are part of my circle of compassion. I'm like totally like, like that kind of, I, I'm, I'm in awe of this process of them being caterpillars and then finding their spot and becoming chrysalis. It's like, like, I cannot envision a healthy recovery that doesn't include a sense of wonder and devotion to something greater, even if it's just the forest and it's just the, it's kind of the mag, like, like where I live, you can see sunrises over the Pacific. Uh, it's weird because it's, I'm literally east facing on the Pacific. <laughs> Check that one out, you know? <laughs> um, so I see the sunrise over the Pacific in the morning as I walk my dog. And it's like including that in my heart you can call it spirituality if you like. I call it common sense, right? And so this is about including wonder and including devotion, including mystery, as well as including all of the hard parts within us, right? And so recovery is literally you are recovering the parts of yourself and of your world that have you have disowned for one reason or another, you know? Um, and, 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 the way that we are recovering it is to bring it into our hearts and bring it into our wisdom. And those places are in ourselves are deeply in some ways mystical. So yeah, I think it's not a coincidence that people have called this process spirituality. 
But if someone, you know, there are people who hear these conversations and they're like, like, so you're saying I have to have God in order to get sober. And like, literally, they're, they're, they're looking at it like that. And to someone who's saying that, I'm like, absolutely not. I think you have to have joy and common sense. And I think that joy and common sense are going to be such healthy. Uh, they're like dated. You can rely on joy and common sense on a day-to-day business to kind of work through whatever it is that's going on. And what you call the cultivation of joy and common sense is up to you. It's, I don't think it matters what label we give it. Right. Okay, great. And so can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you brought this book together for these daily reflections? I know that you also brought in a lot of the teachings of uh, Buddha. There's a lot of stuff in here um, in a couple of different days that I had read too about non-attachment and different things that the Buddha teaches. So can you uh, go into that a little bit more? Sure. So the daily reflections format comes from my time in rehab. They had like a Hazelden had, you know, they probably still have like, you know, very skillful daily reflections book for addictions and codependence and what have you. And so we were given, I think, one of the early books um, on, uh, I think it was called a 24 hour book. And uh, it was super impactful. I would wake up in the morning, I'd read it, and I'd kind of feel. Remember that kind of common sense and joy thing? I'd feel this this alignment and joy behind the idea of recovery by reading this, you know, and it was just, it was great because it took me all of like a minute and a half to do it. I didn't have to, it wasn't reading a textbook. Um, and then I had something to talk about with the other people because most of the people, there was about 30 of us going through treatment together, and most of them were reading the book in the morning and we just kind of chat about it as we went through our day. And so when I became a yoga teacher, I became a yoga teacher right at the moment yoga got popular, basically. Like there were a million people doing yoga when I started, and like 10 years later, there was 30 million people. And so I kind of saw yoga take off in the Boston area. There was, I think I was directing the first dro- like drop-in vinyasa studio in the city, and they'd have like a line out the door. And I just remember uh, I had a, a teacher friend of mine who I'd cover his classes at a very popular gym, and there'd be like 60 people would show up for that class in the gym, right? Um, we were selling out at my studios, 88 spots for 88 people were selling out. So I was witnessing like two years before that, no one was talking about yoga. No one was doing yoga. It was an extremely esoteric thing in the Boston area that me and like, you know, four other people were doing. And I watched all of these people come in and they had no way of integrating the, the theory behind the practice unless they wanted to read a textbook, which seemed very unlikely. And I'm like, why don't these people have a daily reflections book, just like I had in rehab? Like when you're starting off something new, you don't need a lot of information. You just need like a new skill every couple of days, every couple of weeks. And so Meditation on my Mat was created for that. I've done kind of the same thing with daily reflections, but I'm, you know, it's like 20 years later. So I have a lot more information, a lot more life experience. And, um, and here I want to just tell, talk to the listener for a second about how to use the book and what it's for. So in ordinary consciousness, our mind is moving so continually that we're kind of not aware, uh, that that's, uh, that it's happening. But when the mind, is, there's a way that what they say about a single cell organism is that it can defend itself or it can take in nutrients. 
but it can't do the same. It, it can't uh, do both at the same time. So a single cell organism can defend itself or it can take in nutrients. And uh, what you'll find with the human mind is that we can have our mind moving and thinking and creating images and stories, or we can receive the present moment, but we can't do both at the same time. So if you wanted to put your hand in, in warm water to feel like, you know, when my kids were young, we'd draw a bath and you'd feel the temperature. And there was like, I wanted to get it just right. I wanted to be an excellent water temperature taker. I wanted my kids' baths to be perfect. And, and I noticed that for me to feel the temperature of the water, I had to be very, very still. My mind had to get very quiet so I could put all of my attention into my hand. That creates a receptivity. When the mind gets quiet, there's a receptivity. We can start to know what's true. In this case, it's about bath water. So a daily reflections book is like about two minutes where the mind stops. And that creates a teachable moment. You've got to bring all your attention to what's being said. And so at the beginning of your day, you have this quiet two minutes where in that space, a life skill is shared with you. And a fellow addict, just in this case it's me, says, hey, I've been doing this for 28 years. Why don't you look at this skill, this approach to kind of living well and loving well? Just look at this. Um, and so the book, the nature of these books is they create this teachable two minutes where you can receive you know, a truth. And then what's neat is that there's this law of attraction that goes on. So you just open, you can open the book randomly and invariably that's kind of what you need to read that day. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it's written in order and some people, but the way I actually have that book next to my meditation cushion, I open it randomly and it's just fine. You know, I, what I need to read that day is just, I, I intentionally don't open in the same section of the book each, each morning. Um, and then, uh, I, I, I'm aware that I get quiet and I have to pay attention. And then I, ref and there's a way that when the mind gets quiet, the heart gets open. Right. And so for these two minutes, your mind gets kind of quiet, your heart gets kind of open and you're reminded, you know, they say about a teacher, the teacher reminds the student until she remembers, you know? And so it's not like you're getting something new. You get quiet, your mind gets quiet, the heart gets open and you're reminded of what you already know. You're reminded of the path that you've chosen. And you're being kind of affirmed on the path that you've chosen, which in this case is the path of recovery. And so that's the, the purpose of the book, right? Um, I could get into more, but I'm going to let you ask another question because you're running out of time. <laughs> no, no, go. I'd like you to get into a little bit more because I think it's great for people to hear how you intended it to be used. So that, well, so that's the, you know, so that's the... Um, the the way the book can support you is just you have those two minutes and we now where the tools are coming from is that um i think i said that uh how did i put this um i i had a way of describing it in the 12-step world you learn to listen in the yoga world you learn to feel and in the meditation world, you learn to see, right? Mm. And so I, I wanted people to see how these traditions were so dialed into creating a learning possibility, right? That basically recovery is a learning process. And we need support in learning. I have like uh, 
my daughter is in high school, my son's in middle school, and I'm just so aware that, you know, both of my children um, have educators for parents, and they have, like, ridiculous genetics, right? Like, my my wife's side, uh, I'm going to kind of speak out of turn for a second. My wife got a 4-0 at Harvard, right? Can you imagine? <laughs> and, and look, I know, a 4-0, right? So that's the genetics my kids have. So they have these, like, and that's, like, goes on. All Her whole family is, like, Columbia, Yale and stuff. So they have this crazy academic. My parent, my mom was a PhD. My, my father was this, you know, highfalutin exchange student. So they have this crazy DNA. And then they have, like, educators for parents. And I'm so aware that, like, that's just not the case for most kids. That, like, like that wasn't the case for me. I didn't, no one was helping me with my homework. I had no idea what was going on. And so I think for a lot of people, like, being a learner is not something that was really explained to them. How to be a learner. And so you come into recovery where your life depends on your ability to learn. And you're like, I don't even know how to do this. And I don't know, how would someone learn? And, and there's a way that... 12-step programs teach you how to learn. They, they're superb at it. They, and they're very patient. Like, you can just go every day and you can become, you know, like, they'll hold you until, they literally say, let us love you until you can learn to love yourself. It's like, literally, this is the learning process of a 12-step program. But there's some limitations. You're sitting in a metal chair in a church basement and you're listening. So you're learning to listen. Great. But you don't know how to feel yet. And you go, you know, technically, you know, I'm not, this is not actually true, but like, let's just follow this thread. Then you go to yoga and they're like, you know what, we're going to help you feel because feeling's going to matter too. You know, when I, I was probably 20, over 20 years sober when I realized that this feeling I had was thirst, not hunger. I would have this feeling and go eat something. But what I really needed was a glass of water. But I, my learning to feel thing, as someone who was an addict and shut off my body and someone who was traumatized and shut off my body was pretty broken. And so it's been like decades of yoga to learn to feel the difference between hunger and thirst, mm-hmm. let alone the difference between, you know, when to be silent and when to speak up, you know, or when I'm scared or when I'm angry or when I'm happy. It's like learning to feel is like this whole thing that happens in yoga, right? And then in meditation, you're learning to see, right? You're learning to see what is true here now. Like, okay, so now, it, which is a whole nother, it, it's pulling back. So let's say you're in a 12-step meeting and you're listening. You're in a yoga class and you're feeling, let's say we have this magical thing that Nikki Myers put together where it's a 12-step program and a yoga class put together. So now you're, you're listening and you're feeling. And what meditation allows you to do is to pull back and watch the whole thing. So there's what's arising. So I'm in, I'm, I'm feeling this, I'm hearing that. This is the, what I'm feeling and hearing. This is my emotional reaction to what I'm feeling and hearing. This is my physical reaction to what I'm feeling and hearing. This is the meaning I'm making of what I'm feeling and hearing. And meditation allows you to see the whole thing. And what's really exciting, I have to tell you this, but what I love about this is that it, you pull back and you see the whole thing. You can see the whole thing happening, right? You feel your emotional, physical, mental reactions, the meaning you're making of whatever's going on. Um, but the real takeaway isn't just self-compassion, like I'm learning about myself and being human and how humans relate to the world. But you're really learning about everyone. Watching, they say, if you come to know yourself, you're coming to know everybody else, right? 
And so as I watch myself kind of have a moment, I'm learning about my kids, I'm learning about my wife, I'm learning about my, my neighbors, I'm learning about human nature. And this is meditation. You start to see the truth of human nature and, and how it's not like unique to this person or that person. We're all kind of in the same boat. And this is, and so the phrase the meditation teachers say is like, oh, this is what anger is like. And they say that because it's not this is what anger is like for me, but like for everyone. And you're learning to see what it's like for everyone. Oh, this is what sadness is like. Oh, this is what love is like. Oh, this is what joy is like. You're learning to see what it's like for all of us. And so there's these three opportunities to learn that to me are kind of progressive. Uh, and it starts with getting sober. But it's this learning arc. And the, you know, the real you know, thrust of the book is that two minutes and just like a skill for the day. But the larger arc of the book is this introduction to look, you're going to be a lifelong learner. And there's these, these um, communities, there's these uh, circles of learning that are out there in your community that you can get supported by. And so they're meant to be kind of a welcome mat, <laughs> as it were, um, to these three communities and an encouragement to avail for a recovering person uh, or someone who loves a recovering person to avail themselves of these three learning opportunities. Right. And if people would actually like to learn from you, um, can you let our listeners know a little bit more about the online programs that you have, the teacher trainings, your schedule of classes that you're teaching? Well, you know, my website's rothgates.com and it kind of, it's pretty comprehensive. I think, um, I'm in an exciting moment in my career where I'm just doing a lot of different things. Um, and so it's hard to kind of capture like all that I'm, I'm up to because my wife and I are, you know, have done a kid's book together and this whole kid's book thing that we're doing. And I have the books I've written for adults. And then there's the, I travel the country and do workshops. So there's a national workshop schedule. Like I think I'm in Indianapolis next, next weekend and I was in, Pennsylvania last weekend. So I may come to people's neighborhoods, you know, um, I travel pretty much every year. I do uh, 200 hour and 300 hour, like kind of beginners and advanced teacher trainings around the country. I'll be, I think I'm going to be in, um, I'm going to be in Bend, Oregon, and I'm going to be in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. And I think probably Boston with trainings over the next 24 months. Um, uh, but then I guess for this audience, I do the Yoga Recovery Conference twice a year. So I do it in uh, Kripalo in the spring, Kripalo Yoga Center, and I go to Esalen in the fall for the recovery conference. We've been doing that for about 10 years. And so that's an opportunity, five days to work with me, uh, Nikki Myers of Recovery 2.0, no, sorry, uh, Yoga 12 Recovery, and then Tony Rosen's Recovery 2.0. The, the three of us uh, bring in a bunch of teachers and kind of hold space for five days. And then finally, something that people just love is that every December I do a yoga and surfing retreat in Costa Rica. And so I know this is kind of a serious conversation about recovery and all this, but people just love going to Costa Rica in December and learning to surf while also learning to do yoga and meditate. So I'd be remiss not to say that that's something that I do every year. So you want to keep an eye on that Um I, I was just with a couple who went a couple years ago and they're going to come again. And they said that it was the best vacation they've ever been on. And yeah, so, sounds great. Yeah. 
Yeah, because I use instructors. I have people in the water, so you can be a never-ever, and you have an instructor for two hours a day for a week, and you get to really – the water is 80 degrees, and it's like white sand beaches, and people learn. And then they, we meditate uh, three times a day, and we do uh, yoga in the afternoon. And so it's a really good experience for people. And so I just – I'm just giving you – know, I do a lot, but that's my, my most popular product. I bet. Yeah, it sounds like bliss. Well, thank you, Rolf, so much for doing the work that you're doing in the world. And again, for our listeners, the book that we were talking about today is Daily Reflections on Addiction, Yoga, and Getting Well. Rolf, thanks so much for being a guest on the Path 11 podcast. Thank you, April. Keep up the good work. If you want more information about our films, visit our website, path11productions.com, to purchase DVDs or to rent and stream each film. You can also find our trilogy of films on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and Gaia.com. You can still use our smartphone app for both Android and iPhones. Just search for Path 11 in the Google Play App Store, or if on an iPhone, look for Path 11 in the iOS App Store. Catch you next time.